Hello and welcome to Lighthouse Part and Servicing. I'm Jock Sarong and this is a podcast about books, writing and all sorts of ideas. Jock will be in conversation tonight with Angela Savage and Angela Savage is a notable Melbourne figure. She's the director of Writers Victoria. She's not only that, she's... um, a well-published author herself. She's um, got three novels and a fourth on the way. She's been a member of Sisters in Crime for over 20 years. So she is sometimes known as the Savage Detective. She's won awards. She's won the Victorian Premier's Award. She's won the Scarlet Stiletto Award. And I think that's enough. She's been anthologised in a couple of other things and, you know... If you Google Angela Savage, you'll find plenty of information. Um, so, Angela's going to talk to Jock about preservation, and I'll leave you to it. Thanks, Joe. Um, thanks, everybody. Um, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're gathered tonight, the Gunditjmara people. I'd like to pay respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend those respects to any First Nations people here with us this evening. Now, it's just been sprung on me at the last minute that this is actually the inaugural recording of the first uh, Blarney Sessions podcast. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) So make it sound like you're having a really good time. Um, Yeah, so that's very exciting. And uh, as Joe said um, at the beginning, I'm here on stage with a man who probably needs no introduction in this place, but seeing as how it is a podcast, I'm going to introduce him. Jock's first novel, Quota, won the 2015 Ned Kelly Award for Best First Fiction. His Rules of Backyard Cricket was shortlisted for the 2017 Victorian Premier's Award for Fiction and was a finalist in the 2017 Mystery Writers of America Edgar Awards and the 2017 Indie Book Awards as well. And On the Java Ridge, which is his third novel, won... Just a couple of weeks ago, won the Colin Roderick Award. Um, and that is an award given to the best book written in that year um, about Australia and an aspect of Australian life, which is an enormous um, achievement. So congratulations, Jock. And uh, Jock, of course, lives here with his beautiful family. His new book is called Preservation. Uh, it's another stunner, and I'm really looking forward to talking about it with you tonight. Thank you so much for Thanks, asking me down. Um, now, the story underpinning preservation uh, takes place in 1797. It's based on a historical fact. And uh, I was saying to you earlier when I mentioned that story, the, uh, the wreck of the Sydney Cove, my brother went, oh, damn, I love that story. And I'm thinking, how come these guys know about this story and I don't? Is it a Boys on Adventure kind of? It's got a bit of that to it. Yeah. yeah. Where did, how, how did, can you remember how you first came across the story? Um, I think because uh, Lil and I have been going to Flinders Island for nearly 25 years now, incredibly, and um, the wreck is just south of the island in very mm. shallow water and it was found in 1977 and happily it was one of those sort of – it's not an accident of history but – the people who found it were local divers and they made a really, really conscious effort to do everything by the book and they brought the authorities in. It was immediately protected and became an archaeological site. So it's sort of this perfect launching pad for the whole history of, of what happened to that voyage. Um, and that means that you know Flinders Island, is, it's a remote community, it's a really small, tight community 
and it's kind of their story and they hang on to it very tightly and it, it's discussed among them all the time. So when you're down there, you're sort of very aware that the wreck is there and that it has this outsized role in Australian history. So I suppose it started from listening to people down there. Okay. And so just for the sake of the people in the room who might not know the story, give us a little potted account of what actually okay. happened or what, what we know from the historical record happened. Yeah. So I was, I was talking about this the other night and someone said, can you do the elevator version? And it depends how tall you want your building to be because you can do the short building version or you can do the skyscraper version. But the sort of mid-sized building version is that um, the East India Company at that stage had a stranglehold on trade to the colonies, basically to Southeast Asia. And um, people were setting up little trading companies in India to get around the boycott. So there was this mob called Campbell and Clark in Calcutta who were Scotsmen set up in Calcutta and trying to sell things to the colonies. And Sydney at this stage is nine years old and they were really pretty much starving. But the great irony of it all is that Campbell and Clark decided to send them booze. So they, they bought this really cheap, crappy coastal trader called the Begum Shore and they rebadged it with vanity plates and called it the Sydney Cove as a kind of marketing exercise. And they put 31,000 litres of rum on the thing um, and a few shoes. And that was about <laughs> it. Uh, this is going to a colony that's starving. Um, and, and the thing about rum at that stage was that it was essentially money. You could use it to buy and sell property. You could, you could buy and sell people with it, which is pretty scary. And, and there's 31,000 litres of it on this boat. Um, so it was a really bad boat and they had a really bad voyage. And as they came across the Indian Ocean, they pretty much started sinking straight away. And by the time they came around the bottom of Australia, they were in desperate strife. Five people had died of exhaustion manning the pumps. Um, somebody had fallen out of the rigging and died. So the 55 were down to 49 by the time they came underneath Tassie. And in 1797, nobody knew about the existence of Bass Strait. So you went under Tassie and then turned north to come up to Sydney. Um, so they're, they're coming up along the side of Tasmania. They're, they're pretty much underwater by now. There's a horse and a cow below decks somewhere just bellowing for their lives and um, the captain made a very it was an odd decision given what he was looking at he decided he would turn west above Tasmania and see if he could beach the boat and save the lives and save the cargo so he accidentally sailed into Bass Strait and um, managed to beach the boat with 49 people surviving and the minute that they'd done that and they'd all got off the boat the first thing they did was get the rum off the boat and put it on a different island. But um, they sort of had, had took stock of their situation and realised that Calcutta didn't know they hadn't made it, Sydney didn't know they were coming, um, and they had sailed off the map. So in effect, they had vanished. And, and that then led to the decision to get the longboat off the ship, which is a short, sort of a small yacht, and put 17 men in that and try and sail that to Sydney. Um, the yacht lasted two days and they sank that. So two shipwrecks in a week and um, these 17 men started walking to Sydney. And, and for me, the rest of it is kind of nuts and bolts, but where it gets really interesting is when they start walking because um, 13 of these 17 survivors were Indian men. They were Lascars from Bengal and the remainder were Scots. So it's not that sort of classic paradigm of Poms meeting Aboriginal people. Yeah. This was Indian people and Scots. Um, they made first contact with probably six to eight different tribes across two nations, a whole lot of different language groups. Um, and what ultimately happened was that three men made it to Sydney and um, one of them had been speared through both hands. So he had this kind of stigmata thing going on, which had everyone really intrigued. 
And he had been keeping a diary, at least he'd been keeping a diary until they speared him through both hands because the... Made it a bit hard to hold the pen. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what I've written is really based off the diary, which is very, very patchy and leaves out a lot of things you would wonder about, like where are the other 14? Yeah. Um, there's lots yes. of room in there for a novel. <laughs> Um, William Clark was the name of the diarist who was also, correct me if I'm wrong, the supercargo of the yes. Sydney Cove. And that's not a sailing position, is it? That's a no, it's a commercial position. So yeah. he was the nephew of the founder of Campbell and Clark. And um, so his job was essentially to have charge of the cargo. And one of the interesting decisions early on, I think, is the cargo has been unloaded onto the islands. Why do they send Clark on the walk rather than leaving Clark with the cargo, given that his job is to preserve it? Yes. Um, but they sent him off. And I wonder if that sort of hints at some kind of rift that had developed. Right. And the, the other two characters that you have standing at the end of the story is um, another uh, Scotsman, John Figg, yep. and one of the Lascars, which is a, a, the term used for sailors, Indian sailors, um, as I discovered when I Googled it, um, <laughs> one of the Lascars who's called Srinivas. Are they um, figments of your imagination or are they on the historical record as the survivors? Um, a bit of both. So there was another Scotsman who survived and I, it's, it's not quite known but we think his name was John Bennett. And to be honest, I just thought that wasn't much of a name to use in a novel. <laughs> so I decided to change it, which is a little unfair. Um, and the other was, he's simply described as a Lascar boy who was William Clark's manservant. Right. Um, so I, I've given him that name, but otherwise we know that there was a teenage boy who was one of the three who made it. And we know that among the 17 who got off the longboat in what looks like, and we'll talk a bit about the map that's at the front of the book, but looks like it might have been 90 Mile Beach or somewhere like that. that yeah, they... it's probably a little bit west of Lake Centrance. Right. And so the, um, among those 17 who got off the ship were 10 or 12 of the Indian Lascars. Yeah, and, and the way that it fell, um, once I was writing it, I looked at it and there's this stigmata thing that's happened um, and there's 12 Lascars and their charismatic leader. And I thought, oh, hang on, there's a little bit going on religiously here um, that, that may or may not be there in the historical record. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got the... We've got the bones of this fascinating story um, and lots of beautiful space for the novelist to occupy. Peter Carey used a, a gorgeous metaphor about this recently when he talked about writing the true history of the Kelly gang and he said there's actually very little known about Ned Kelly's actual life. And he said it's like a dark stage where you've got pencil lights and the pencil lights just shine this little bit of what's on the historical record and it's that dark space that the novelist moves in and as long as you go in and out of those light bits every now and again you can kind of get away with it. Did you have a sense of, of the need to reference what was known on the historical record as you were making things up in between? Yeah, yeah, there's lots of ways to think about it and um, there's the Kate Grenville response to it which was that she was really worried when she wrote Secret River that, that the story got all of its power from being true and that the minute it wasn't true it somehow started to dilute. And, and that that really worried her because she had a true story of her ancestors that she wanted to work with and ultimately she did fictionalise it but the process of letting go of the truth she thought was really alarming. Um, so, yeah, as far as I could, and, and bearing in mind there's a million different ways you could approach this, but yes. I really wanted to leave the true bits standing and then look at how big the gaps were between the true bits and, and figure out what you could put in those gaps. Mm -hmm. I think it's such, a, um, it's such an intriguing approach and I can see how a story like this would be so seductive. But how did you settle on 
the characters. We're, we're going to try and avoid spoilers, um, even though we know we kind of, you know, you've got the frame, you know how many people make it to the end. But you've got a really, you've, you've done some really interesting things in terms of point of view, who you've chosen to narrate the story. Um, let's talk a little bit about John Figg's character because he is quite an extraordinary creation. Um, very much, it's fair to call him an anti-hero really, I think. Yeah. So tell us about Fig, Fig in inverted commas, because that's not really his yeah. real name, is it? Early no, on, no. So Fig, um, I don't think this would be a spoiler, but Fig has stolen someone's identity. He has appeared in Calcutta, murdered a man, and taken his papers, and then turns up on the Sydney Cove as John Fig, tea merchant. And there's early signs he probably doesn't know anything about tea, um, but Fig is a really evil guy, and. Um, there's kind of this archetype that I was looking at in a whole lot of books I'd read and it was really interesting to discover that the same character pops up again and again. So if you think about, um, I don't know if anyone here has read The Master and Margarita, but I actually read this after I wrote Preservation and it has, the, the, Lucifer comes to Moscow in the 40s and it's a pretty hilarious book actually. Um, but Lucifer appears in the guise of this guy called Professor Wolland and creates mayhem and then disappears again. Um, if you look at uh, the North Water, there's a guy in it called Henry Drax who does a similar thing, turns up on a boat, at the end he kind of disappears. And um, that figure turns up again and again in film and literature. And um, I was sort of thinking of Fig in those terms, that he would be animated by the presence of others, would create mayhem, not for any particular purpose. It wasn't greed or lust or anything. It was just mayhem for mayhem's sake. And then somehow he would disappear off the other end of the story, almost as though he was immortal. Um, the other example is Judge Holden in um, Blood Meridian is a similar character. And I said this to Mandy Brett, who edited the book, and in her Mandy way she said, oh, yeah, that's a Dybbuk. And I said, what on earth is a Dybbuk? And it turns out that a Dybbuk is a really, really old Jewish tradition um, which is almost a pagan tradition, which, which is a kind of demon. And there are rules for how a Dybbuk works. And a Dybbuk um, has to be awoken from some deep slumber at the start of the story. And you can, you can think of like Brothers Grimm fairy tales or something. There's lots of these. Um, has to be awoken at the start of the story. Creates mayhem in somebody's adventure along the way. Um, and then, yeah, disappears then immortally at the end. Yes. So that, that's kind of who Fig is. So it's almost like you've tapped into this... Well, you've tapped into kind of those story archetypes. Because there was an element... Because the, the, the story almost has a quest kind of pattern to it as well because these men get off the boat and they've got to walk 550 miles yep. between Lakes Entrance, say, what we now know as Lakes Entrance and Sydney. And we mentioned before the map that's at the front of the book and it's I, I wish we had a slide of it actually. I didn't think ahead of time fast enough but it's quite beautiful. Do you want to describe it? Yeah, so um, there's two maps, I think, in the front. Um, one is an actual reproduction of the map that the sailors were working with. So it was created by an Englishman called Ferno, which is why the islands are called the Ferno Group. And you, I don't know if you can see this from the distance you're looking at it, but there is a gap where Bass Strait is and nobody knew what was there. Um, and then the second... So that's the actual map reproduced that they were working with. The second map is a made-up map made to look antique. Um, and all of the borders are taken out, as you can see, and all the towns are taken out, and what you have is the way the Aboriginal... Uh, tribes and nations were set out, um, which of course is a difficult thing to nail down specifically. But um, 
Yeah, so that's that's the country that they were walking through and how far they got. They got within about 40 miles of Sydney in the end and got picked up by a and fishing boat. And they got picked up, that's right. And what's – so what's um, so mesmerising – well, one of the things that was so mesmerising for me about this story was the notion – almost like you were giving us, um, albeit your imagined, insight into what – into pre-settlement Australia, so what it would be like to actually walk through – um, Aboriginal nations at that time and it's um, uh, one of the other kind of elements of that which is sort of so enjoyable in a way is that of course the um, Aboriginal people that they encounter along the way connect with the Indians. They assume um, that the oldest man among the Indian group is the respected elder and they totally engage with him as if he's the leader which of course infuriates the Scotsman who um, are coming very much from that colonialist model. Um, tell us about how you researched that. How did you, how did you put together that walk? How did, you, um, how did you so vividly evoke what Indigenous people, how Indigenous people were living at that time or imagine how, how Indigenous people were living at that time? Um, it was a really hard thing to do and um, of all of the aspects of the story that are known, that's the bit that is the biggest gap. There's really, other than um, Clark writing, and, and he wrote things like, you know, today walked 18 miles, next day. So you've got very little to work with. Mm. Um, but I read up a lot about what the understanding was of those groups at that time. And again, there's not a lot. Um, I tried to think about language in the sense that I suppose what gave the Scots their superiority over their Bengali sailors was language. That they were always in control of the situation because they spoke English to each other and to other merchants. Um, once that's gone as an advantage, once nobody can speak to anybody, then it seemed to me that the Bengalis um, might gain the upper hand and indeed they had the numbers. So their charismatic leader um, suddenly gets the upper hand in Prasad, that sort of power yes. struggle. And yeah. arguably they're much more linguistically literate because most, of the, uh, most Indians would have spoken multiple languages because that's how they traded. So yeah. they had it and, and there's a kind of dexterity with which they... Um, engage with Aboriginal language along the way in a way that the Scotsmen don't. Yeah, you know, there's this sounding out of words and this trying out of words and this attempt to communicate between the Bengalis and the Indigenous people that doesn't take place between um, the Scotsmen. Like yeah. They're not in interested in that level of engagement. I think that's exactly right. And the other thing that happens, of course, is that um, they're probably thinking about a different idea of salvation. So for the Scots, there is only one way of reaching safety and that is getting to Sydney. The, the Bengalis start thinking about, well, we've just been taken into this society and they have houses, they store grain, they grow crops, they manage the environment around them. And they this, treat us with respect. They treat us with respect. <laughs> this is a safe place. Haven't we reached salvation already? Mm. Where the Scots are just determinedly fixated on Sydney. And um, I think that would also, and this is a guess, I think that would also be reflected in the way Aboriginal people looked at them, that they're going from south to north in this straight line, which is not necessarily a way that they would have crossed country. Mm. Um, why are you trying to get from here to there across our territory into the next territory? Mm. Mm. That it may not have made sense. Mm. One of, um, it's a great pleasure to follow, like to feel like you're on that trek. Um, in the story. It was a particular pleasure for me because my mum lives on the south coast of New South Wales in a region that the, um, that the group passed through. And, um, I'd, you know, it's one of those ridiculous things where I'd never considered just how much those place names are derived from the original languages until you actually see them spelt phonetically 
and put them in that context. And the lovely um, onomatopoeia in some of them, like Maruya and Naruma, they have these beautiful noises in them. You know? Yes, mm. yes. Maruya being the black swan. Yes. Yeah. Uh, duck? Swan? Swan, I, swan, I think. Swan, is it? Swan, yeah. I think so. Um, but yes, I guess I was saying, because it is a quest, because it's a, it's a, it's a voyage, it also has that kind of, well, I want to say hero's journey, but it's really the anti-hero's journey um, as well, and I wondered if you were conscious of that when you were when you were structuring the story. Was it were you influenced by any of those kind of travelling quest type um, stories? No, but I, I think I thought a bit about the Batavia, and again, you had a madman on a ship, um, and, and I think that is an archetype as well. Yes. The idea of, of being trapped almost in a hostage situation with somebody who's really unhinged. Um, the Batavia obviously ended up so differently uh, in terms of them being stuck on an island and not able to mount an expedition. Mm. Um, but also it mirrors what's going on in Sydney, that Sydney in a sense is a society marooned um, and everybody, who, well, almost everybody who's there is there against their will and, mm. and Hunter is kind of an example of that. The governor at the time was, was John Hunter who was, um, he was about 60 years old so by their standards he was ancient and um, he had never married... He played the violin, he painted birds, he was a really quiet, scholarly, serious man who was actually really humane. You think of those early governors as kind of being monsters, but he, he was a great humanist and I imagined that he would be kind of shipwrecked in that society. Mm. The Rum Corps was starting to get going and, and MacArthur was starting to rise and, mm. you know, rum was being used as money. It was a pretty ugly place in a lot of ways. Um, and, and here's this kind of gentle, quiet man trapped in government house Mm. Almost like he's hit a rock. Mm. Yeah, and there's so that they're the other characters, they're the other narrative points of view that are in the story is Joshua, who is the um, the Grayling. He's the lieutenant working under Hunter, and he's one of the people kind of sent to interrogate these three survivors to try and figure out what the hell's happened. Uh, and Joshua's wife Charlotte is another one of the. Um, just in case you were thinking it was very blokey. We do get a female point of view um, and, and she's a really interesting and engaging character as well um, who without – no, we won't go there because I don't want to spoil that bit. But um, uh, there's some – again, what – were you conscious of, um, of that the story somehow needed a female perspective? Okay, tell yeah, us a little yeah. bit I, I remember early on thinking to myself, this is a boat with 55 men on it. What am I going to do? <laughs> and um, – so I, I think there was an obvious need in a narrative sense that there be a female voice somewhere in the foreground. Um, but the other thing about it too is that if you look at what's written about those first few years of Sydney, and it improves later on, but really there were only two types of women written about, and one was the kind of convict prostitute figure and the other was the really prominent women like um, Elizabeth MacArthur and Carolyn Chisholm and people like that. And there's really this enormous gulf in between, which is just ordinary women going about their lives. And, and so there, I thought there was an opportunity to write such a woman in there. Um, and the other great value of doing that was that there was all this fear at the time that was deliberately generated and maintained um, of anyone going beyond the clearing that was Sydney. So the bush was just mm -hmm. out there and the bush held all these terrors including the fact that at that stage nobody really knew the extent or the variety of the wildlife. <laughs> um, but also there are people out there like there was a, a Cadigal warrior called Pemelway who, was, who had killed people, had burned down farms, um, was mounting his own kind of one-man war at the time and he'd been shot and when they shot him, and I think they shot him in the head, they, they took him into a, a sort of a hospital building, chained him to a bed 
and waited for him to die. And he somehow not only didn't die, he escaped. And it led to a belief among Sydney people that Pemmelwee was, was somehow immune to bullets. So he's out there in the bush. There's all these other characters. There's a guy called Boke, and there's a guy that they called Black Caesar um, at large trying to raise armies against the settlers and burning things down. And um, accordingly, there was enormous fear about going beyond the bounds of the village. And um, I thought with Charlotte, there was this opportunity to have her defy that, that it would be a great act of sedition to go for a walk in the trees. Mm -hmm. um, and to come back and her husband, who is a, you know, he's a middle-class guy, he's an officer... She's an officer's wife. It's just not the done thing to come back with twigs in your hair. Mm. And um, so, Mud yeah. Mud on your dress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I thought that was a really interesting thing to explore. Yes, yes. And it's, um, it is a really uh, – your evocation of, of place, the bush, the, the wildlife in it, the kind of – the difference between um, the way that Indigenous people engage with that environment and, um, as something that's beloved and, uh, and a rich source of food and, and – um, sustenance of all kinds versus the kind of fear and loathing that uh, that's coming from the colonialists um, invaders is is very rich and enriching and it's a kind of really interesting way of using place as a metaphor for those um, different emotional responses and reactions to yeah yeah and, and you see the political reality I think you know when you read through early Sydney there's so many examples of those differing attitudes to the land. And one that really struck me was there's this infamous story about a day when the settlers took boats out with nets and they pulled 4,000 fish out of Sydney Harbour. And apparently the nets were so heavy that they had to wait for low tide to empty them because they couldn't pull them out of the water. And um, the Eora were looking at this with just horror that you would take 4,000 fish in one go. The, the counterpoint to that is there's a record somewhere, which I've then written into one of the later chapters, of somebody watching... Um, watching the Eora fishing at night. And it's the women in um, canoes, which they call nowies, and there'll be two women in each canoe. Sometimes they'll have a baby strapped to their back and between them they have a little pad of bark in the canoe. And these canoes are tiny things. Um, they have a little base of bark and they have a fire going on it and they'll cook fish while they do it. And so this settler describes looking out over Sydney Harbour at night and seeing these little fires drifting all over the harbour which are these these tiny little canoes with two women in them just fishing quietly with twine that they'd made. That must it must have been the most beautiful thing to behold. Mm. And and the counterpoint against that is four thousand fish being dragged yeah. out in one hit yeah. and left to rot on the beach. The difference between actually taking what you need yeah. to eat Precisely. <laughs> and taking what you don't need but think feel compelled to sell. Um, it is a stunning achievement, this book. I've kind of Every, one of, every time you release a new book, it becomes my new favourite. Um, and I think this one is, um, as I say, just for, for so many reasons, for the light that it sheds on this early part of Australian history, um, for these incredible uh, voices of characters that are in equal parts um, alluring and repugnant, but you can't look away. <laughs> um, there are some very visceral scenes, which I think you're becoming famous for, um, involving tweezers and... Uh, <laughs> I won't say too much scalpels. I won't say and boils. Um, you get the picture. Um, and also an incredible scene, and I think maybe we might just briefly touch on that as a as a bit of a parting shot. Tell us about the whale country. It's a story that's really of all of the little incidents in the book. It's the one that's probably the best recorded historically, 
which is that at Twofold Bay where Eden is, if anyone's been there, it's mm. beautiful, steep forest going down to a, a deep enclosed bay. And um, for a long, long time, there was a whaling station there and that whaling station went way back to about 1822 or so. Um, and the reason the whaling station was there was because there were orcas herding juvenile pilot whales into the shallows so that the whalers could kill them. And it was this relationship. There's actually photographs of, of the main orcas that were doing it. And um, the relationship between the whalers and the orcas, this cooperative thing, because the whalers would then give the dead whales tongue to the orcas to eat. And that came from um, the local Aboriginal people who had shown the whalers that that was possible. And so there was, there, there was a, a sacred aspect to it. There was a dance that went with it and singing and all these other things. Um, so the first white men that saw that realised the potential of it and started to hire local Aboriginal people to do it with them. And that went on well into the 20th century, which is sort of incredible. Um, so, yeah, I was fascinated by the idea of somebody seeing that for the first time and that it would be incredibly violent, these killer whales basically ramming a small whale into the shallows mm, so mm. that it could be speared while somebody chanted and, and sung over that. Mm, mm. But, um, I, yeah, once you've got an image like that in your head, you know, you just <laughs> yeah, got to get There's it certain <laughs> things that you can't not use in, in a book once you've stumbled across them, isn't there? Um, and I think, again, what emerged from that scene, and it is a very visceral and quite violent scene, but, again, you have this incredible sense of every part of the whale being put to use, um, you know, that it all has a purpose, that only... What's being taken is only what's needed, and it's all going to be used. And it's, it's, yeah, it's quite, it's very powerful. I think also the senses that go with that are that there's there's not that kind of triumphalism over killing something. Mm, yeah. That there is there's a great so. excitement about everyone's going to be fed for quite a long time here, but equally there's grieving for the dead animal in the process, and and I hope a little bit of that kind of seeped into the account as mm. well. So I, we've, we've talked a lot about the book and its historical underpinnings and I think it goes without saying, I think you can tell from the way Jock speaks about it, the enormous amount of research that underpins this story and yet when you're reading it, you are just swept up in this amazing, um, amazing narrative, this amazing kind of tale that's almost got a mythic sense to it. I'm really interested to learn about that character because I think there are, for me, there were so many kind of mythical grand narrative elements to it. So I... I'm very um, excited and enthusiastic to commend the book to you all. This is the bit where we officially launch. You get to hold it for photos. <laughs> so I'd like, on behalf of everyone here, to congratulate you, Jock, on another magnificent novel. Um, I do encourage you all to buy a copy and Jock will very happily sign it for you this evening. Um, and please join me in congratulating and thanking Jock and declaring preservation <laughs> launched. <laughs> Thanks, Anne.